Miss the show, no worries. We've got you covered on our podcast on point tonight. Government inaction over the last four weeks has now led to some violence over the weekend in Nova Scotia between indigenous groups and local fisheries. What's the issue? And how do we resolve it before it becomes a national crisis? We will talk about that. The provincial government announcing that they're going to give control of the recycling industry over to the producers. It kind of sounds to me like they're putting the fox in charge of the hen house. We'll talk about some of the things that could go wrong doing this even though it will save municipalities millions of dollars. And we'll talk about a Toronto Sun article talking about Sir being used to buy guns. Okay, so gangsters are taking advantage of a government program that has been taken advantage of by millions of people. My problem is those in charge are doing absolutely nothing about gun violence that is absolutely ravaging Toronto, the GTA, and areas around it. Maybe we should talk about that. What's your point? You just don't ever get the point. By getting killed to you, that's the point. Do you understand? There is a point. That point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Listening. I don't want to be the bad guy out there that says kids can't go trick-or-treating. I, I don't want that. As I won't mention, but one of the mayors said, hey, uh, you know, at least I don't have to be the bad guy that has to cancel Halloween. You do. Like, I don't want, I don't want to be doing that. Believe me. But when, when you have the kids going up and the groups may go up four or five and, and you're, you're sticking your hand in the, the candy jar and then handing it over, a lot of times what we would do, we hand out the, you know, the container and say, okay, kids, take what you want. They're sticking their hands in. You know, I'm just, I'm just following the, the health advice. No trick-or-treating for kids, but thousands protesting without masks? No problem. So let's call Halloween a protest, and we'll call that problem solved. Alex Pearson with you on this Monday, October 19th. Hope you had a terrific weekend. Probably many of you spent it like I did, which was uh, decorating the house for Halloween and uh, starting the creation of my son's costume, which this year he is going out as Paul Stanley. Star child. So I'm delighted because finally he's into good music. Uh, except he actually wants a real Gibson Les Paul to carry around with him, which I'm trying to explain to him. I don't have that kind of money. But at least he's got good taste in guitars. But uh, I love Halloween. It is my favorite day of the year. My son absolutely loves it. I mean, what, what kid does not love it? I mean, what kid is not already saying, can I please wear my cat? I want to wear my costume every day. That's what they do. So, look, the thought of no Halloween is not just silly, if you ask me. It is cruel and unnecessary, totally unnecessary. Because Halloween to a kid is magic. You know, it is adventure. And with all they've been through already, their sports killed, playgrounds closed down all summer long, uh, summer camps, birthday parties. Now we're taking this away? And the the premier's not saying he's canceling it, period, because that would make for bad politics. So I get it. He's damned if he does, damned if he doesn't. But this to me is overkill, especially, you know, when we've been seeing protesters do whatever they want, getting a pass since the start of this thing. Because, of course, it's a democratic right, we're reminded. And over the weekend, there were thousands of anti-maskers. There they were in Dundas Square, not not a mask to be seen. 
And we've seen all sorts of these protests, be it them or Black Lives Matter, whatever the cause. And yet on the other side, we're shutting down the law-abiding businesses and now telling children that somehow they can't safely get candy. So like I said, let's call Halloween a protest because candy matters. And, you know, as long as we've got planes full of COVID passengers coming in daily from hot zones, or you've got these, you know, stooges spitting all each other, all over each other as they scream about their freedoms being under threat. I mean, surely to God, we can have some fun in the kids' lives, right? I mean, I'm sure parents can somehow navigate Halloween safely. Maybe, I don't know, they can put a bowl out front. Or maybe parents can spread the kids out. Or I don't know, if you don't feel like you're safely able to do it, just shut the lights out. Look, for me, it's not about the candy. It's about normal. It's about maintaining normal for kids, which they have not had. And maybe you don't recognize it now because they seem to be able to roll with the punches, but it is affecting them. And so, you know, it's not their fault that the government on every level dropped the ball. It's not their fault that there's no rapid testing. It's not their fault that we're not prepared for the second wave, that everyone in charge knew was coming. So why punish them further? It's about being normal. It's about letting them have some kind of, you know, something to look forward to, a little bit of fun, and they're going to be outside, right? But I do agree with one thing the Premier said today. I think he actually summed this whole thing up quite succinctly. COVID sucks. What can I say? It's terrible. It's just a terrible, terrible thing, and it's not fair to any single person. Indeed, it is not. It's not fair at all. And it does suck. And, you know, we're starting to see the start of the shift of the blame game. I'm not sure if you've noticed it. You've got little comments coming here and there from Justin Trudeau, his MPs. Last week, uh, it was on the testing chaos where Trudeau told our sister station in Winnipeg that he's made money available for the provinces. They just need to ask. And then, of course, in the next breath, makes it very clear that if things aren't going properly, his government's not responsible. Really? Sorry. But there is so much blame to go around. Sure, yes, to the provinces, because they, of course, are the ones bearing the brunt of the hard work in dealing with the day-to-day challenges delivering this thing. So, yeah, they're going to get blamed for stuff, but make absolutely no mistake. The Trudeau government deserves plenty of blame because it was the Trudeau government which ignored warnings about COVID back in December. They refused to shut down borders to traveling uh, hot zones and back. You know, they're the ones who threw out or gave away all the protection. And it was the Trudeau government that shut down the pandemic warning system back in 2019. So to say his government is not responsible is laughable. And reason, I think, as health critic Michelle Rempel pointed out, you know, it's likely why liberal MPs are now blocking a health committee looking into the government's inaction on this thing. What is rich about this situation is that the liberals have been saying that their reason for stopping the WE documents from coming to light is because they want to focus on the pandemic. If they stall our motion at the health committee that's actually related to the pandemic, that thin excuse becomes even more ridiculous. Mm hmm. Look, the reason that Trudeau gets such praise for this pandemic response is because he's seen shelling out buckets of money because he's got our backs. We're all on Team Canada. 
But then you follow the dollars and it starts to lead to a lot of inconvenient truths that the, the liberals have made it clear they do not want revealed. And that's why they're blocking all sorts of investigations, not just the health committees looking into pandemic response, which is a completely legitimate investigation. But they don't want anything on spending investigated, not on we. I mean, the we thing, they've wasted 21 hours, three days blocking any other information from coming out. I mean, how is that focusing on Canadians, which is what they tell us they're doing? They're focusing on Canadians. Well, why are you spending hour upon hour then reading newspapers into, you know, a committee hearing just to, to stall the clock? And this isn't about what Trudeau, you know, the family got paid, but what Trudeau himself got paid from the time he was a backbencher from 2006 to 2013 and to see if there's any conflicts. And he was paid a lot because the, the, the liberals put out a list today of what Trudeau earned as a, a paid politician to speak. And they did that ahead of tomorrow's opposition day, which is when uh, the conservatives actually get to take control of the House and drive the agenda. So they know that this will be brought up. And I guess they think that doing it this way is going to put the fire out. But boy, does this, oh, is there a lot of smoke here? Because I was reading through like what he made and how much he was paid and who paid him. He made 1.3 million bucks in speaking fees while sitting as an MP. So he's getting the MP salary, but here he is charging banks, universities, school boards, charities. First of all, who charges a charity? I mean, that's gross, especially if you're a politician making a big salary. I mean, that's gross. And why is a politician being paid to speak to public school boards, which we the taxpayers pay for? But you look at the list. I mean, he got 10 grand from the Ministry of Youth, 10 grand from Ontario's Hospital Association, 10 grand from the city of Mississauga, 10 grand from the Peel School Board, 10 grand from the Charity of Hope. I mean, look, there's nothing wrong with speaking and getting paid for it. But why is a wealthy politician already getting paid a very handsome salary, taking any speaking fees? I don't understand that at all. Not just from charities, which is icky, but government agencies. I, I don't understand how that was ever allowed to happen. So tomorrow the uh, Conservatives have the opposition day and they're going to table a motion forcing an anti-corruption committee be set up to investigate all the spending that the Liberals have done during the pandemic and see who else has gotten paid other than we. Who else? Other than we know that a Liberal MP from Quebec got paid a lot of money for ventilators, former Liberal MP, I should say, uh, for a number of ventilators, like millions of dollars. And the ventilators aren't even approved. Who else got any of these great deals? That is a legitimate investigation. And so the liberals are saying, oh yeah, well, we're, we're going to threaten to use this as a confidence vote. Meaning they're willing to take us into an election in order to hide any and all scrutiny into their actions with our money. And I think uh, Charlie Angus summed it up perfectly. We go from the dumbest scandal uh, to the dumbest response ever. I would think that the prime minister would recognize that it would be completely irresponsible at the biggest medical uh, and economic catastrophe to hit our nation in a century to threaten to plunge the nation uh, into the turbulence of an election and uh, the fact that Parliament would not be able to reconvene for months just to avoid uh, answering questions uh, 
regarding his relationship to the Kielberger Group. That, I, I can't see the Prime Minister uh, being that reckless. Who knows? It's 2020. Anything goes. You know? Who knows? So we'll keep our eyes closely peeled to what happens tomorrow because it could be eventful. It could be not. We'll see. Uh, coming up, why are long-term cares kept out of the discussions on pandemic preparedness? And why is the province actually killing Halloween when a lot of the epidemiologists say this is not necessary? We will talk to the good doctor in just a couple of minutes. Stay with us here. Busy show here tonight. You're listening to On Point. This is Global News Radio. Well, Darren Eastbound 401 collectors at Bayview, earlier problems cleared away. We've also had some problems north DVP at York Mills, they've cleared away. So right now our highway is trouble-free and things have really eased off this hour from our uh, evening commute. So right now, again, focal sections, but overall highways look good. Westbound on Girard between Leslie and Jones, we've got it closed off. We're still dealing with a crash investigation and emergency crews on scene there. Ready to holiday? Indigo and Chapters have the gifts you want before you need them. Shop online with same-day in-store pickup or visit any location. Visit indigo.ca. I'm Kimberly Fowler with Global News Radio, 640 Toronto, Chop for Traffic. Well, it is a standoff over a month in the making, and while it's happening in Nova Scotia, it does have, I think, the potential to turn into a real national crisis. And the Trudeau government is under fire for allowing this thing to fester for weeks. And if you haven't been following this, at issue... Uh, the local fishermen are protesting against the Micmac First Nations, who have set up about 500 lobster traps outside of the federally regulated season. And the Micmac argue that it is their right, outlined in historic fish uh, fishing treaties, that allows them to fish for their sustainability. But the fishermen say it's encroaching and threatening their lobster stock. And this standoff's escalated to the point that the RCMP had to be called in this weekend after a fire destroyed a lobster pound just days after it was ransacked by a mob. But the Micmac, they don't want the police coming in. They want the army to come in and stop the fishermen from taking the law into their own hands. Ken Coates is a Canadian historian focused on the history of the Canadian North and Aboriginal rights and Indigenous with the Macdonald Laurier Institute. Good to have you, Ken. Great to be with you. All right. Um, could this have been prevented? Uh, there's a lot of criticism that the Trudeau government let this thing get a hand, but could it have been, um, you know, avoided? And how often have we seen these tempers flare like this? Well, first off, to answer the second question, this is a repeat of the conflicts of 1999-2000 when the Marshall decision first came down and when the Supreme Court of Canada said Aboriginal people have a right to fish for commercial purposes. We had a almost almost line-by-line reenactment of the kind of conflicts we're seeing now, confrontations on docks, uh, destruction of property, actually in this instance, ramming of boats, and in a previous instance, ramming of boats and shooting of guns. So we've been down this path before. Um, it's not really fair to sort of focus on the current government. Uh, all of the previous governments from over the last 21 years could have dealt with this. When, it was, when the Marshall decision first came down, the government was not prepared. They floundered around for a long time. It took them about six months to find out, settle on a strategy that would actually work. And we had 20 years of peace, relative peace, quite surprising peace, and, and great success for the indigenous fishers um, in the maritime fishery, Atlantic fishery. So, so we've, we've done it before. Um, could we have solved the problem? Yes. Uh, if you had taken that very, very odd and kind of weird phrase of moderate livelihood, and actually negotiated a definition that was acceptable to the government and to First Nations, 
had you identified a long-term role for Indigenous people in the fishery um, who claim appropriately, because the Supreme Court has said that they have a treaty right to fish, that the treaty has relevance, and therefore the, the First Nations say we should be part of the planning process, not just have plans imposed on us. Um, uh, you know, yes, you could have resolved this, but this is quite frankly not always the Canadian way. We tend to, to limp forward on Indigenous rights um, push along a particular path and somebody will go to court and you'll have a challenge and the courts will be asked to sort of resolve it for us once again. Right. But in the meantime, tempers have really, really flared. Um, and, and as I understand, you've got 500 lobster traps set up by the Micmac, but the fisher- the fishermen, the local fisheries, they put up hundreds of thousands. So how is this encroaching really on stock uh, of the lobster or is it? Well, the answer is yes and no. I mean, first off, uh, the, the non-Indigenous fishers are right. They, they fish according to established uh, rules and regulations. There are open fisheries that start in November. Uh, right now it's a closed season. So they are not allowed to go out. They put their whole quota and their licenses at risk. If they go out and, and, and try to fish for commercial purposes now as a non-Indigenous fisher, uh, they could be in real, really serious legal trouble. Um, so in that sense, it's outside the manage the conservation management of the lobster fishery. Is it doing damage to the sector? Uh, according to um, a marine biologist, uh, I am not one, but according to marine biologists, this is actually a relatively small intrusion in a very robust fishery that's actually well managed. Uh, and many of them are saying that this is not putting the stock at risk. But you know, the, the non-indigenous fishers are responding to a principle because if in fact you can break the you can break the rules. You can fish outside the seasons. Um, does it stop with 500? Does it go to 1,000? Does it go to 20,000 to 50,000 uh, different pots? I mean, that's the issue here is who regulates the fishery? Uh, does the federal government have preponderant and sole power? Or do Indigenous peoples have the right and opportunity to impose their own regulation, their own management of the fishery for their own uh, purpose? So you, you have a situation here where sort of everybody's right and therefore nobody's right. Right. But if, if we're talking about issues of sustainability, those aren't a seasonal thing. And so I would assume that that's why this do that. So if that's the issue, why why all of a sudden has it flared up? Well, it's actually flared up because it is working outside the regular seasons. I mean, the conser- fishery conservation is extremely controversial, as you probably right. know. Yeah. Uh, certainly, we've had problems with the cod fishery out on the East Coast. We've had problems with the salmon fishery on the West Coast. And you're almost never going to get a solution that actually makes all the fishers happy and the sports fishers happy and the indigenous people and the consumers generally. So, so these are very controversial things. And you settle on a regime. You settle on a Department of Fisheries and Oceans regime that everybody finds uh, mildly acceptable. Not offensive, not perfect, but mildly acceptable. Um, and we've had that for 20 years. 21 years. We've had this uh, regime in place that everybody followed. Now you've got a situation where the First Nations are under increasing demand and pressure from their own communities to create more space. The space that was created 20 years ago when the Indigenous population was quite a bit smaller, 20% or more smaller than it is now, um, you, you actually didn't have lots of people lined up to fish. Now you've got lots of young people graduating from high school, graduating from college, graduating from university saying, I want to go fishing. I want to fish with my father, my mother, my sister. I want to get out of the water. And there's, there's no quota. Uh, and so now you've got this incredible demand from the First Nations saying, we need more space. 
If you're a non-Indigenous person, you say there's a finite number of, of lobsters that can be caught. More space for First Nations, by definition, means less space for us. Um, and that then puts their livelihood at risk, or so they see. So you have to appreciate and understand the non-Indigenous perspective, not accepting for one second the violence or the, or the destruction of property. There's no, no tolerance for that whatsoever. But you right. understand the frustration on that side. Um, in the past, the non-Indigenous fishers have been fully compensated. Uh, when, when the quota was given to First Nations after Marshall, the quota was actually purchased from existing fishers. And there was a very smooth and, and a surprisingly successful transition from one to the other. So it, it's kind of an intriguing sort of situation to find ourselves in. The government is now scrambling around, calling for peace and quiet, hoping for talking about they're going to go back to the negotiating table. They've been there for a long time. This is not an issue that's been ignored for 21 years and popped up out of nowhere. It's basically one that was not resolved and not resolved and not resolved. And finally, First Nations said, we've had enough of this. The only way to resolve this is through our direct action. Right. And, and, and look, we saw the flare ups with indigenous groups over, uh, you know, with the land, uh, the, the rail blockades earlier this year, which seems now like 10 years ago. Uh, but that was this year. Uh, you know, the, the government was very hands off on that. I don't know what the, their approach is going to be other than calling for calm here. But, uh, you know, do you see the military coming in? Boy, that would sure escalate things an awful lot, wouldn't it? That's not, again, not sort of the Canadian, the Canadian way. Um, the, the other example is Caledonia in southern Ontario, mm-hmm, uh, where mm-hmm. the government has, the conflict's gone on since 2006, and the government has steadfastly refused to take sort of very direct and dramatic action. One of the things we learned from the Oka crisis quite some time ago, uh, many, many years ago now, um, is that, in fact, the capacity of the Canadian armed forces and the Canadian police to really deal with uh, a, a lot of anger and frustration in this country actually very limited. We're a very vulnerable country because of our yeah. linear infrastructure, because of the widely scattered population. So if you brought in the army into, into one place and then you had flare-ups in seven places, do, you, do we have a big enough armed forces to go into seven First Nations communities? Can the police handle it in that particular regard? I think we're going to see a more active role for the police. I'm hoping we're going to see interventions by uh, local and regional politicians to sort of call for calm and to sort of uh, deal with it that way. I'm really counting on the role of the very highly professional uh, non-Indigenous Fishers Association uh, to sort of um, you know, disassociate themselves from the violence, but to, make, but to urge a negotiation. And, and uh, you've got to give an awful lot of respect to the First Nations leaders, who for many years, this is not something that's happened in the last six weeks, for many years have been dampening down the anger and frustration in their communities for people who say, you know, we, the treaty said we can all have a moderate livelihood. We don't have a moderate livelihood. You know, if the treaty doesn't say moderate livelihood, the court, Supreme Court decision doesn't say a moderate livelihood for 47 people or even for 1,000 people. It says you have a right to have a moderate livelihood. So the First Nations have been keeping a cap on that protest, I think, very successfully. Um, but the situation is tense, as you very properly described. Um, this is not a, there's no easy and obvious solution uh, that will sort of calm things down sort of right away. Um, and unfortunately, the government of Canada has, over the last five years, been much better at making promises than delivering solutions, right. uh, particularly yeah. for Indigenous issues. And so on many, many Indigenous files, there's a, a, a growing frustration with a government that, that promised so much and has delivered, they actually delivered a lot, but they, aren't, they haven't delivered as much as they said they would. 
And so the, the, the lack of uh, trust and confidence is actually quite palpable. Yeah, that's the problem of over-promising and under-delivering. At some point, you got to deliver. Ken, thank you very much for your insight. Appreciate it on a very complex issue. You're more than welcome. Take care. That is Ken Coates uh, joining us. So this will not be solved overnight. We will keep an eye on it, and uh, we will see if and uh, when or how they will achieve some kind of calm. When we come back, if uh, kids aren't learning about the Holocaust in the classroom, there is a true-to-life experience right now that literally puts you on a train just like the Jews were as they went on their final journey, the new way of teaching history to kids. We'll talk to one of the organizers of this in just a second. Stay with us, Alex Pearson on Point, and this is Global News Radio. This morning, there was an announcement out of the Ford government, which tells us they're overhauling recycling in the province, putting more power into the hands of producers. And Global News did an investigation into the recycling industry, revealing that a majority of what we put in our blue box ends up in landfills. And so now the Ford government wants to replace the current blue box system, putting the costs and responsibilities onto the producers and take it off the hands of the government. They say it'll save about 135 million bucks a year, but does it actually fix a very deeply flawed program? Let us ask someone. Parker Gallant is CEO of Energy Perspectives. He joins us now. Hey, Parker. Hi. All right. So when you've had a chance now to read through this, um, the idea is to shift the cost of recycling off of municipalities and property taxpayers and on to the businesses that produce the waste in the first place. So what are they saying? Are they saying they're going to go after producers like toy manufacturers and that? Like, what are they talking about? Well, um, I've done some research, a little more research on this since you and I chatted. And there's an organization, which is a not-for-profit, called Stewardship Ontario. And basically, Stewardship Ontario consists of the companies that are creating all this, you know, blue box waste, if you will. And uh, since, uh, and, and what the Ford government appears to be doing is revising this act, which was passed in 2016. It's called the Waste Free Ontario Act. And basically what it requires is those stewards, the met, you know, like Canadian Tire, Coca-Cola, Procter & Gamble, people like that, are paying funds into this organization that's not-for-profit so that they can take the, the, the if you will, the, the stuff that we've put in our blue boxes and recycle it. Mm-hmm. And um, it, the interesting thing about the organization is that uh, it, it claims that it's doing a lot of good, like it says it reaches the Blue Box program, reaches 94% of all Ontario households uh, with access to recycling, and that it uh, the steward fees are $128.7 million. That was in 2018. And uh, they recycled uh, supposedly 780,555 tons. Um, and uh, 60.2% of, of their Recycling uh, is the rate that they, you know, they uh, they actually recycle of the stuff they collect in the blue box. So it's hard to know whether Ford is just kind of increasing the fees that the stewards are going to pay. In other words, the people that are selling the uh, products or importing the products that have the stuff that has to go in the blue box or not. But I mean, the big, yeah, go ahead. It almost looks like that. I mean, we already have some really, you know, uh, good recycling efforts going on. As an example, I just happen to be a member of the local Rotary Club here, 
uh, in Prince Edward County, and we have. We've run a, a um, bottle recycling depot, which basically takes uh, all the you know beer bottles, beer cans, uh, all shapes and sizes these days, uh, as well as all the wine bottles, because we're wine country, um, all the wine bottles that come in, and, and we basically sort them and... Uh, and and uh, the beer store comes in and collects them. And believe it or not, the standard um, you know beer bottle, the dark beer bottle, gets recycled. I mean, it gets reused. I should say about fifteen times each. So the the beer bottle you're drinking out of today could you could have had you know uh, fourteen or fifteen different people drinking from it in the past. And then all the other all the other. Uh, bottles that we collect are sorted by clear or colored and the beer store basically crushes those down and sells them back to people who make new wine bottles or new uh, uh, clear bottles so, so that a works on a on a on a community level. I mean, the big challenge has been plastics. Um, you know, and and I think most people when they they put stuff in their blue box, they do it thinking, okay, I'm going to get all this stuff in my blue box, and it's going to go and get recycled. Only to learn that like 14 percent of what you put in the blue box actually gets recycled. Most of it ends up in the landfills, be it uh, those claw uh, delivery boxes with very hard black plastic and, uh, you know, the things that you get from restaurant deliveries and that kind of thing. Th- those things aren't being recycled. Does this address that problem? Well, it's hard to know. I mean, you know, if, I, if you read this the stewardship program, as I said, 780,000 uh, tons of, of uh, material recycled, that sounds like an awful lot. I'm not sure how much uh, we actually produce in the province, but um, the, the fact of the matter is is that uh, there is a lot being done, and, and what Ford seems to be doing is saying we're going to, you know, get the stewards, people that are members of this organization, to pay more, so that uh, we can reduce the cost to the municipalities. And then there's another organization called the Ontario Waste Management Association with 196 members and I was you know sort of scrolling through the members and it looks like most of the members are are the townships you know the municipalities there been regional governments uh, and a, a number of companies that are involved in uh, be well recycling uh, construction materials and other things of that nature which would be you know a lot harder to do than than uh, you know recycling uh, uh, aluminum cans or, or tin cans uh, so it's hard to know. I mean, there's a lot going on in the province that, you know, uh, a lot of people don't realize or know about. But uh, we are re- we are doing a reasonably good job. I think what we're doing, though, is dumping a lot of stuff. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're residential uh, customers are putting a lot of stuff in the garbage bag. That is, is part of the problem. And a lot of that stuff that goes in the garbage bag, if you will, is not... I mean, it should be recycled stuff, or it should be stuff that is put in the blue bin. Uh, so I think there's a lot of that that goes on, um, you know, not not knowing exactly what people put in their garbage bags. Is, you know, you can't sort of determine that, but that is the stuff that is filling up, I think, our landfills. And then, yeah, it's also very confusing. I mean, you have to have a degree to know exactly what can go in and what can go out. And, the, you I, know, if you make it too hard for people, they won't do it. Well, I know, and one of the things that bugs me is, you know, and I'm I'm pretty good at recycling, is if I put anything that has, you know, it's a black plastic, if I put anything um, with a black with black plastic 
in my bin. Mm-hmm. I find that it's still there. You know, yeah. when I go to get the empty bin, they've taken out the black plastic because it can't be recycled. And you wonder why the government doesn't pass a regulation saying, hey, you cannot, you know, um, all companies that are, you know, packaging food or, or whatever they're doing, um, you know, plants that you buy, that, spring, yeah. don't use black plastic right. because it's not recyclable. You know, that, yeah. that would cure a lot of things that can't be recycled. I mean, you know, just as one small example, I'm sure there are, there are many others as well that would fall in that same category, including, yeah. say, some of those funny plastics. But, you know, at the at the bottle depot that I work at uh, a couple of times a, a month at least, um, you know, the plastic, you know, you you can buy wine in plastic, that is that goes back to the beer store and the beer store recycles that plastic you know the you know any bottles you buy even the caps off the beer cans will be recycled right yeah, so there are a lot of things going on. In fact, the beer store has been touted. I'm up. I'm up against the clock, Parker. I apologize. Okay. <laughs> Not my fault, but I am up against the clock. Yeah. We'll talk again about it because I want to get more details that are always uh, in the small print. Thanks, Parker. Oh, thank you for having me. And, but there are, uh, yeah, there are a lot of confusing parts of this. So we'll continue looking into it because on the surface it sounds like a good move, but again, the devil on these things is in the details. Well, no, there's dozens. There's several different gangs across the city that have taken advantage of it. They're both uh, the members and associates who are, you know, technically unemployed. They're drug dealers. So they have no legitimate source of income. So when your mark is unemployed, um, then you're eligible for the program. And they're taking advantage of it. That is Sam Pazano, longtime court and crime reporter, former colleague of mine from the uh, Toronto Sun. And he's uh, come out of retirement to write an interesting piece where he claims Serb is being exploited by gangbangers who are using the money and then buying up illegal weapons either on the street or getting them smuggled in from the United States through the border that uh, is shut down, but then by now we all know is clearly not shut down. And what they're buying and what he reports with this government handout, well, he's talking about an enormous amount of firepower that they then uh, carry around without any fear of being caught. Got the... Uh, everything from uh, used guns, which are lower value, four hundred, eight hundred dollars, you know, nine millimeter semi-automatics, to new Glocks, which on the black market go for three thousand dollars. But there's several of them, you know, teaming up their money to buy the weapons, and they're all black market weapons, of course. Of course, that's why banning legal handguns doesn't work. And I know a lot of people will kind of focus in on the issue of Serb being used, but that's not really the issue for me. Because we already know that Serb has been exploited and ripped off by millions. In fact, $22 mil- billion, uh, has actually been paid out to people who don't need or deserve it. So uh, no one should be surprised that maybe gangbangers are also in on the grab. I'd be more surprised, actually, if they weren't. So to me, the issue is the one issue no one in charge wants to talk about. And the issue that's being totally ignored by those in charge because all we're talking about is COVID, which is very convenient because as long as we're talking about COVID-19, then the mayor of Toronto and the Toronto and GTA police, they don't have to deal with this real issue, which is plaguing our cities. And gun violence, without question, is an epidemic. Because shootings happen now so often, we don't even talk about them. 
You know, shootings used to be front page news. It used to lead the newscast and it's barely a mention anymore. There are like shootings almost every day of the week, anywhere, anytime. Friday morning, 920, there was a man walking uh, on Kingston Road in the Morningside area where people are uh, hustling off to work. You've got kids going to school, shot in the arm by a gang, uh, a car full of gangbangers that just uh, pulled up and opened fire. This happens every day. And sources in Sam's piece cite that, you know, it's a shoot first mentality now where collateral damage be damned. And it's not just one or two shots. So the firepower we're seeing traveling around the GTA and Toronto used to see you know, what used to happen is you'd find six to 12 shot casings at a scene. Now the cops are seeing up to 40 rounds left behind. And it used to have, you know, a code in gang violence where you saw the violence kept within gang turf, which for those small communities was an absolute nightmare for these communities because they felt held hostage by it. But now, thanks to getting rid of things like intelligence uh, gathering like carding, getting rid of these task forces. Gangbangers know now that they can walk freely around the city, fully armed, and they do. They simply don't care. They have absolutely no fear of getting caught. And that's why we hear and we're seeing shootings happening all over the GTA and Toronto any time of the day. And even if it's, you know, we always hear, well, at some point we're going to get a Jane Krebus situation and that will like snap everybody back into reality. Well, we've had those situations. Like you'd think that two little girls playing on a playground in broad daylight getting hit by bullets would wake people up. And it doesn't. You know, a couple of weeks ago, a youth counselor at Lawrence and the Allen was killed. It happened three weeks ago. No one talks about it. And gangsters, look, they want to build street cred. So they want to take out a big target. They want to do it in the day, in a high-trafficked area. Because getting away with that will be worn as a, as a badge of honor. And if an innocent life is taken with it, they don't care. That's why we see, you know, rappers being taken out. Take a rapper out, you brag about it on YouTube, make a video about it, and apparently that gets you instant street cred these days. You'll recall maybe, there's been so many at this point, but there was a killing of a Toronto rapper named Houdini who was gunned down back May 26th in broad daylight at the busy intersection. And, and I used to live in, in the condo down there, but right outside of Gretzky's restaurant, right out front of the high-end hotel Bisha, where people were on the patio, Workmen were working, you know, building the buildings. There was so much traffic around there. And you look at the police video, which clearly shows three gunmen firing 23 shots at the intended target, which is this rapper. And what happens in the video, you see a six-year-old child, you know, almost killed within inches of these bullets with his mother. And then at his memorial service, that too became a stage to gunfire as those in attendance were shot out from a gangbanger parked in his car. And then you look at that video and it shows you 10 people at that memorial pulling out guns and returning fire. They had no idea where they were shooting. And then when the cops go back to investigate, they find 60 shell casings were recovered. So you've got dozens and dozens of people around live guns, 
loads of ammunition. And that's just one event. I mean, we are well, well, well on our way to breaking another record this year. Passing last year's uh, shootings, which are 492 as of October 13th. We hit 402 shootings, which is up from 370 at the same time last year. You look back to August alone, 70 shootings in one month. That's more than two shootings a day. And what do we get from those in charge? Nothing. They ignore it. All we've gotten from our leaders is calls for feckless and utterly useless gun bans of legal gun owners that will do nothing to stop the carnage. And they know it. Justin Trudeau knows it. John Tory knows it. And the police chiefs, including former police chief Bill Blair, he knows it. But they all fall in line because they know that banning handguns will do nothing to stop the cancer and the carnage on our streets, but it is politically popular. It makes people feel like something's being done. So they get away with it. I mean, that these criminals are taking CERB to supply their carnage, sure, it's insulting. But I think more insulting is this lack of leadership from every level of government in charge that choose to look away and not do anything. And they fully well know that people are being killed all over the city or people are being put in the direct line of fire at any given time during the day all through the GT, and I should add in Hamilton too, in the GDHA, because no one in charge is willing to do what needs to be done. And there's a whole bunch of things that need to be done. They need to invest in these communities. They need to bring places like Lawrence and the Allen uh, area back and revitalize it. They don't invest in it. And they got to do things that are unpopular, which is make sure that gangsters know they're being watched. And it's not politically correct. But they have to have intelligence to do that. And until they do that, nothing's going to stop. So it's not just one or two communities now being held hostage. It's everybody in the Toronto GTA area. And that is, you know, getting ignored because all we're talking about is COVID. If COVID didn't exist right now, maybe we'd be talking about gun crime in the city of Toronto and the GTA. But all those in charge know that right now they can brush it under the carpet. They can give their wimpy little, we're going to ban handgun speeches. Everyone will feel like something's being done. And then tomorrow morning, I guarantee you, we will wake up to someone else being shot somewhere in the city of Toronto or Hamilton or Mississauga. And someone else's family will be destroyed. It never stops. It's not going to stop until we get serious about it. And no one in charge is serious. That's how I see that story. Miss the show? Of course, you can join us Monday through Friday, 6.30 to 10, here on Global News Radio. I'm Alex Pearson. This has been On Point.